So good morning, everybody. You are welcome to The Bridge. My name is Sarah, and I am going to be your host this morning. I feel like one of those, uh, when a waitress, I'll be a waitress for this morning. I'll be bussing tables. Uh, anyway, uh, my name is Sarah. We are, physical location is on the lands of the Semiamu, Stolo, and Quantum peoples. Um, we acknowledge this is not a land that we have right and title to, but a place where we are gifted the permission to live. Uh, this is, if you would like to find out where you are, nativeland.ca is the place to go to find that out. You'll notice we have a new theme, Lent, um, Henri Matisse and the Colours of Lent, but more of that in a minute. Uh, I'm going to transition to myself and talking about Lent, um, the colours thereof. Uh, Lent is the 40-day season of fasting ahead of um, Easter. And the math obviously doesn't work. It's not 40 days before Easter because we don't count Sundays. Sundays are always looking ahead to the resurrection. So Sundays are not a, fa are not a fast day, but a feast day. So the 40 days of Lent lead us up to Easter. Um, we are invited into the wilderness, which is a place where we can clear our heads, challenge ourselves and reflect on how we want to grow. But make no mistake. Any wilderness journey requires boldness, ferocity, and creativity. Just ask the animals that live in the wild. Henri Matisse was considered one of the founders of fauvism. Um, he was called fauve, which is French for wild beast, because of his use of bold and bright colors. Uh, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures by him. Too many screens open. He was a person who painted not what he saw, but more what he felt. So his colors are colors of emotion. So this is woman with a hat. Obviously that's quite a hat, but clearly it wasn't actually green. Um, and so this is, this is his way of painting. It's using bold and bright colors. Um, his driving idea was to move away from the convention of mimicking and reproducing what he was seeing in front of him, but actually looking with his emotion and his heart. So it's an interesting way of looking at the world. Here's another of his pictures. One more. This is the roofs of Collier. Obviously, again, the hills in the distance are not actually pink. Or this salmon color. The roofs aren't actually that color, but he's painting instead what he feels rather than what he sees. So this is the invitation uh, of Lent this year, is to, is to step into the feeling rather than perhaps what we might see with our eyes um, and engage with the kind of emotional interaction of the whole thing. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to hand over to Eden to do communion with us. So God of the wilderness, Help us to learn and grow, always trusting in you for nourishment and care. Give us the bright boldness of wild beasts, the courage to move in new directions and the insight to attend to the emotional dimensions of life. Strengthen and open and humble our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. And behind me, I have a green painting. And I would encourage you to look for green this week. Look for where you have green in your life. Look for where you find greens that are beautiful and promising. 
figuratively or actually, and greens that you hope will come into being. All right, over to Eden. I think I'm unmuted. Is that true? Awesome. So I met up with a friend from my childhood and youth uh, this last week, and we had not sat down to chat for well over 30 years. She'd been a very close friend of mine during um, the, you know, difficult years of teenagedom. But we picked up and caught up with the same or maybe even like a a deeper transparency than we had all those decades back. It was really sweet, reassuring, and good for my heart. I see that there's a correlation between the time with my friend and our time together with Jesus this morning. Communion is a sacred practice within the church But for some who have gone through deconstruction, the significance of this practice may have been lost or or just set aside. I want to encourage you to come back to this, to your friendship with Jesus, to return to that old, known, and familiar connection with him. The context of that first communion was a circle of friends. These 12 and Jesus had been all but inseparable for three years. And whether they knew it or sensed it or were entirely oblivious to what was about to happen, there was a gravity about the meal together and the things that Jesus was saying to them. So let's consider communion to be like our meeting with a friend, our friend Jesus. We sit down together and catch up on the things that we've been struggling with. And we move into gratitude for the relationship and how it affects us each day. And then we acknowledge that Jesus's role and friendship in our lives makes all the difference to our outlook on life. As we take the bread, we tell our friend, that his willingness to die for us has deeply impacted who we are. And as we take the cup, we express openly that his love for us that exceeded all limits has profoundly changed our hearts forever. So let's pray. As we sit at this table with you this morning, Jesus, we acknowledge what a good friend you have been to us. Thank you for all your friendship has cost you and for how we benefit from your love for us. For the life we receive at the cost of your life, we are deeply grateful. Amen. Take and eat.
So it's my privilege now to introduce our speaker, and Myrna Rempel. So um, Myrna joined us about six or eight months ago. Does that sound about right, Myrna? And um, um, when she said her name and where she grew up, I knew who she was immediately, even though I doubt we ever had a conversation in our lives to that point. Um, uh, but she's a really beautiful person. She's funny. So if you hear laughter coming out of the kitchen at church on a live Sunday, you can be sure that Myrna is in the middle of that. That's definitely um, like a magnet for her. She's deeply caring, um, very committed, and has a profound connection, which she shared a few weeks ago, to Ukraine and Albania. And I personally counted a privilege to call her my friend. So uh, let me pray for you, Myrna, before you um, pontificate for us this morning. Jesus, would you give Myrna everything she needs to share her heart with us this morning? And even while she spends herself on our behalf, would you fill her up to overflowing? Amen. All right. So uh, hopefully I'll, you'll come along with me on the journey I've been on. Um, Eden had asked if I would do uh, preach and share a bit about what I'm doing outside of my real job. And you guys heard kind of about Albania. And thank you for all that have supported. I'm going to be there in a couple of days. I can't wait. And the other area um, is Ukraine, uh, where I started a nonprofit called Reach Ukraine, where we raise money to provide housing for orphans who age out of the system. And right now, um, what we are going to do is use the money for, and we have been using the money for emergency relief for the war. And so if you want to partner with us, we're small, so we could use all the help we can get. That would be great. And I'd be happy to talk to any of you about more details of what we're doing. But in my real job, uh, what I am is a counselor. And a few days ago, <clears throat> I had this conversation with this girl who gets in trouble at recess all the time. I love her. I love her spirit and spunk. And so she was talking to her. I'm like, oh, what happened? And uh, she's like, oh, I got in trouble. Why'd you get in trouble? And she's like, the boys weren't listening to her. I'm like, well, then what happened? And she's like, I said the S word. And so right away, a few words went through my head. But when you work with children, um, the words they use don't always carry the same meaning as what they do for us as adults. So I'm like, oh, interesting. So what S word did you use? And she said, the really, really bad one. <laughs> so then now I'm pretty sure I know what it is. But then I said, can you tell me what it was? And she said, stupid. I called him stupid. And I'm like, okay, that wasn't the word that was in my head. But that was her word. So we kind of unpacked it for her and found 
other ways of dealing with her feeling other than name calling. But as I was doing this uh, little talk, I was kind of feeling a very similar kind of feeling where maybe some of the words in the passages, I had a definition to it that maybe God didn't intend. And so um, it was really wrestling with some of it. And I'll take you a little bit on that journey. And as a side note, if you are ever wondering if the pastors at the bridge love you, this is how you can find out. It's really easy. If they approach you and say, hey, want to do a little preach? And you go, sure. Then, then they'll say, okay, we'll send you passages. And then you go home, you check your email, and if the passages are like love, joy, peace, hope, you're golden. But if you get sin, confession, repentance, you're screwed. No, I'm just kidding. The past, you just have to spend 0.5 seconds with these pastors and you will know how much they are just filled with love for everyone. But I did get those passages. So I was wrestling a bit because for me, it's kind of like I felt I got all the bad words of the Bible. Um, because sin often and confession or repentance carries with it such a heaviness and it brings up for myself and probably some other people feelings of judgment, shame, isolation, perfectionism, this angry God that's just trying to catch you doing any little bad thing and punish you. It's often been used as a weapon of hate and discrimination and arrogance against people, making them feel less than. I remember after one of my accidents, it was a bad one, leaving me with permanent nerve damage in my leg. Um, I was an athlete at the time, and so a lot of people were praying for me that I would be healed. I wasn't. And um, they turned it on me to I didn't have enough faith or there was sin in my life. And there was like all these fingers. And there are those of you listening right now that I know that have been hurt by people's finger pointing and accusation and saying God said when just maybe God didn't. So I knew at this point, I had a choice to make. I could either redact my Bible and try to white out all the words that were causing me problems. But honestly, that seemed like too much work. So I thought, let's dive in and pull this apart and see maybe God has different meanings to some of this, these words than what maybe I grew up with. So before we get into Psalm 51, which was the passage I was kind of reacting the most to, I had to start right from the beginning, which is what is sin anyway? And context for me is everything. So I went back to the Hebrew and what does the Hebrew word for sin actually mean? So the Hebrew word for sin is kata. It actually isn't a religious word. 
it means failure to fulfill a goal. Like I said, context is everything. So if it's failure to fulfill a goal, if that's the actual meaning, then we need to know, okay, who's the goal giver? Okay, in this setting, it's God. And what is the highest goal? Well, in the Old Testament, we find in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments. Half of those commandments on failure to fulfill the goal of love towards God, and the other half are failure to fulfill the goal of love towards people. And then in the New Testament, in Matthew 22, it basically says, love God most, and then love other people like you love yourself. So what is sin then? And honestly, I think it might be failure to fulfill the goal of love. Whether that be loving God, loving others, or loving yourself. The three are interconnected as we see in Matthew 22. If we fail in our goal of loving God and fulfilling that goal, um, it impacts how we love others. It impacts how we love ourselves. If we fail on our goal of loving others, it impacts our goals on how we love ourselves and also how we love God. Likewise, if we fail in our goal of loving ourselves, it impacts others and ultimately god because we are made in god's image we are all made in god's image without exception and worthy of being treated with love and respect sin is a failure to fulfill the goal of love this kind of changed the flavor and feel of sin for me but it doesn't stop there the new testament adds to our thinking and giving kind of a deeper understanding to the human condition and katah. In the New Testament, the word for sin is actually the Greek word hamartia, which means a force that compels people. So I don't know if you're listening, Karina, but it isn't like Star Wars, the force is with you, sorry, but it's more like the force is in you. The forces in you compelling you to do the things you don't want to do. And not only that, blinding you, making you think that you're succeeding when in fact you're failing. In Romans 7, Paul talks about this, where he says, I do the things I don't want to do. Uh, we see in the Old Testament, Pharaoh wanting to improve Egypt's economy and national security. What does he do? He justifies enslaving the Israelites, thinking he's doing good, succeeding when he's failing. King Saul was chasing David all around the wilderness, trying to kill him and justifying it as, oh, I'm putting a criminal to justice, bringing a criminal to justice. They thought they were doing good and succeeding, but in fact, they were failing. Have you ever been there? Uh, when you've been so blind about what's going on in your life. And then all of a sudden that moment when your eyes are open and you think, oh my gosh, like what happened to me? How did I get here? And that's David's story. 
So let me give you a little bit of the context of this. David, when he started out, when we kind of started hearing about him, he was this boy with a rock and a slingshot, which normally is bad, but this time is good because then he took down Goliath with his stone and a slingshot. Okay, he was this humble boy that just loved God. In this context, he ain't that guy anymore. He is a king, he's powerful, and that power has gone to his head. Uh, his people were at war, and in that time, it was required that the king be at war with his men, especially the mighty men, the, the elite of his army. And he honestly felt he was too good for that. So he stayed at home, which led to him watching Bathsheba bathe in the courtyard, which also was common practice during that time. Bathsheba wasn't doing anything wrong. So one bad decision kind of led to many others. He then summoned Bathsheba uh, to sleep with him. Now, many scholars refer to this as rape because again, context is everything. In this time, you never, ever, ever said no to a king or you could be killed. So she didn't have any choice here when she was summoned. So also remember Bathsheba was like, it's like some soap opera. Bathsheba was the wife of David's, one of David's best friends, Uriah. Uriah was like one of his main guys, his advisor, his friend, his confidant, and was one of the mighty men leading in the war. And while he's fighting for David, David goes and summons his wife, gets her pregnant, then tries to cover all this stuff up and goes, okay, got a problem now. So what I'll do is I'll bring David back or Uriah back and I'll get him drunk, he'll sleep with his wife, and no one will know that that baby is mine. Except he wasn't counting on Uriah was a man with integrity. Uriah didn't want to get drunk and sleep with his wife when his men were fighting in war. And so that plan didn't work. Now David panics, and he decides, okay, that didn't work. This is all going to be exposed if I don't kill Uriah. So that's what he does. He has Uriah killed. So that no one will know that baby is his. At this time, God kind of taps on the shoulder of a man named Nathan. Nathan was like, he was a prophet, but like David's accountability partner. We all need those people in our life because we get blinded to the stuff that's in our life. And Nathan was that for David. And so he went to him and said, you need to confront David. So he goes to David and says, hey, I got a story for you. And I need an answer. David's like, okay, cool. What's the story? So then he says, well, we've got this rich guy over here. He's got everything. He's got power. He's got money. He's got everything he wants. And over here, We've got this poor family, but they've got love. They love each other so much. 
and they also had this baby sheep that they love and so much so that they consider it like family it's like a, a pet like it's just they love that sheep the rich man had a traveler come to his house and he decided i'm going to feed the traveler make a feast so what does he do he takes the sheep kills it and then he says to david what should we do with this man and there was david freaked out was super angry and said that man needs to pay four times what that sheep is worth and he needs to be killed at which point <clears throat> Nathan gets his finger out and starts swirling and points right at David and says, that man is you. At that moment, I just feel sick for David because I think he probably froze and then his eyes were open and then that sick feeling in your stomach as he began to realize how badly his failure was in love and i'm sure in one of those moments of his grief he had the thought of how on earth did i get here from the little boy that trusted god fully with the rock and the slingshot this leads me to my second problem is how now did god view david mm god would view david as a man after his own heart at this point i'm like are you freaking kidding me a murderer a rapist out of all the people you could pick in the bible that's who you pick as the man after your own heart well in psalm 51 i think it gives us some clues as to why God did pick David as the man after his own heart. So one of the reasons I think is because David knew God, like he really, really knew him. And he appeals to the God of mercy. We see that in verse one of Psalm 51, where he says, have mercy on, on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. He knew where the North Star was when he was lost. He knew who to come home to and he knew where to come home to. David also knew failure to love others and himself is ultimately failure to love God. And we see that in verse four, where he says against you and you only I have sinned. All three are connected. He wasn't saying that he didn't wrong Bathsheba and Uriah and all their friends and family. He hurt a whole slew of people, including his own army and closest friends. But he knew that in what he did, it was as if he did that to God. Because we're all interconnected when we do not love another well it is as if we are doing that to god he knew also god's desire for healing we see in verse 7 where he says says cleanse me with the hyslop and i will be clean and i'm like hmm, i wonder why he wanted hyslop 
But when you look back in that time, the hyslop plant was used as medicine for a lot of conditions. <clears throat> and so I believe part of what he was saying here is that he needed to be healed. There's no magic. He had to do the hard work. He also knew he needed healing. He had massive consequences, natural consequences that he had to face after this. And he was doing his part, but he knew he also needed God's touch. He needed healing because when we fail, all of us, when we fail in reaching our goal of loving ourselves or others or God, it does damage to us. It hurts us. It's not about like scrubbing the scarlet A off our foreheads. It's about healing. He knew also God desires not only for healing, but he wanted to give joy. We see that in verses 8 and 12. Uh, the pain was so bad. For David, it felt like his bones were being crushed. I don't know if you've been there. I know some of you have where the pain is so bad sometimes you just can't breathe. I know I've been there. And in that, David sought God's forgiveness. Again, David knew God and that David's heart was turned to God and knew God wished him not just healing, but joy and wanted him to thrive. David knew the restoration of joy in our lives was God's goal. David knew his healing also required his participation in other people's journeys. We see that in Verse 15, where he says, open my lips, Lord. God doesn't waste one thing. The good, the bad, the ugly, he redeems it all. Your story, your pain, your healing will bring people far greater hope than any of your successes. David knew God was concerned with the direction of the heart more than perfection. In verse 16, it says, you do not delight in sacrifice. God doesn't care about what we bring to the table <clears throat> or how perfect we think we can be or how many rules we think we can follow. What he cares about is the broken pieces. He cares about us being humble. He cares about us being real. He cares about the direction of our heart. It's not about perfection. It's about direction of our heart. Our hearts pointed to God and all the messiness, the broken pieces, and all the times we failed at fulfilling in the goal of love. David wasn't a perfect man, but his heart was turned in the direction to God. You are a person after God's own heart. Direction over perfection. In closing, 
There is so, so, so much more I could say about this passage. It has now become one of my favorites. Um, but let me end with this. If you're comfortable, I would ask um, that you close your eyes and just kind of shut out any distractions. And as you reflect on maybe some times in your life when you fail to fulfill the goal of love, whether it's in yourself towards others or God, um, or maybe you've been a victim of that, as you reflect on that, I want you to hear these words being spoken over you. Possibly some words that God may say to you as he sees it all. He may say something like, I see you. I see you behind the busy, behind the keeping it all together, behind the depression, behind the I'm fine and the smiles. I see you. I love you. You are a person after my own heart. I see you're strong, you're giving, you're caring. I see you showing up even without the answers. I see you're tired, your sleepless nights, your worry. I see you work through the worry and cling to possibilities. I see you. I'm proud of you. You are a person after my own heart. I see your love, your hope, your belief in the good. I see you caring and the hours you spend trying that nobody sees. I see you deal with guilt because you want to be the best you can be. I see you. Direction over perfection, my child. You are a person after my own heart. I see that sometimes you need to be told how much you matter, that your giving makes a difference, that you are enough. I see you. You are enough. You are a person after my own heart. I see how hard you try. I see how you let go of comparison and try to be real. I see you stumble and yet stand up again. I see you're brave. I see your courage. I see your heart. I see you because you are like me. You are made in my image. You are my beautiful, beautiful child. I see you. I see it all and declare to you, yes, you are a person after my own heart. Amen. Thanks, Myrna. Wow. It's like you preached before a few hundred times. <laughs> <laughs>